Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ridiculous Crime is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, Zaren. Do I know you? No. Oh, cool. What's your name? Zaren. Hey, what's up? I'm Elizabeth Dutton. Nice cool. to meet you. Uh, you know what's ridiculous? I do, Zarin. Oh, you do? Yes. Uh, Pet Rocks. That is ridiculous. Right? Okay. This the, like, What uh, if you just stopped right there? Just stop. Period. Pet Rocks. <laughs> I've heard, I'd heard about them, so I decided, like, what is a Pet Rock? I went and looked it up, and there's, like, a lot more to this than I realized. Oh, really? So it was this dude named Gary Dahl. He was an advertising executive. He was talking with his friends at a bar, and they were talking about, like, complaining about, oh, i got to walk my dog and get up so early in the morning. And he was like, oh, you know what would be the perfect pet? A rock. And they were like, yeah, whatever, <laughs> Gary. Whatever, loser. And so he's like, oh, yeah. And he went out, and he decided, I'm going to make Pet Rocks into a thing. So. He did. And so he decides he gets custom cardboard boxes made. He gets yeah. this little like uh like feeding and care instructions thing that's filled with like puns like uh-huh. how to teach your your pet rock to do tricks like sit and stay. Right. And then there's difficult ones like come. Like no one's been able to figure out that one yet. But yeah. maybe you can. That kind of jokes, right? Well anyway, it lasted six months, the whole fad, right? But in that time, he sells Millions of these. He sells like about one million of them for yeah. about four dollars each in nineteen seventies dollars, which is like wild to me. He becomes a millionaire. He then buys a bar in Los Gatos. He's a local. <gasps> oh no! I way. didn't know this. Dude's a California local. Yeah. Anyway, he regrets doing it. In nineteen eighty eight, he no said, way. "Sometimes I look back and wonder if my life would have been simpler if I hadn't done it." So, oh, he got, things got complicated after that. Uh, yeah. I mean, people would like just like sue him Mo about like my, my pet rock dropped on my foot or. I don't know. Oh, He's getting a lot of lawsuits <laughs> from cranks and wackos. Anyway, Gary Dahl, Pet Rocks. There you go. That is ridiculous. Uh, you know what else is ridiculous? No, tell me. Uh, a badass woman who stands up to the mob and Black Hitler. <laughs> what? <laughs> This is Ridiculous Crime, a podcast about absurd and outrageous capers, heists, and cons. 
It's always 99% murder-free and 100% ridiculous. You heard that. We're we're 99% murder-free, right? Yes. Okay. So you're going to use up the 1% today? (laughs) Well, that basically means that the crimes that we cover aren't specifically murder, and the criminals we cover aren't murderers. We've both said that we can't make light of the last day of someone's life and the horrific events that surround it. No no good jokes. And, you know, that day is also the worst day of the lives of that person's loved ones, Mm -hmm. right? So we keep it light, and um, I'm going to do that today. Okay. But here's the thing. The woman I'm going to tell you about is... Murder adjacent, we'll say. You already said Black Hitler, so I'm figuring this one's <laughs> going to get wild. Little sideways. Well, her crimes are incredible and ridiculous in all senses of the word, but murder seems to, like, swirl around her. Okay. So she didn't really kill anyone. She's a murder black hole. It's just happening around <laughs> well, her. She fought a guy in self-defense, and he mm-hmm. fell and hit his head. Okay. But um, her life is so, so, so much more than that. Another guy fell on knife seven times. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And she's so fascinating that I figured I'd use up our 1% on this Okay, one. I'm into yeah. it. All right. So I'm talking today about Stephanie St. Clair. Oh, yes. A.K.A. Queenie St. Clair. Yes. A.K.A. Madam Queen. Uh-huh. Madam St. Clair. And Queen of the Policy Rackets. Put some respect on her name. Yes. Stephanie St. Clair. Born on Christmas Eve. 1897 in Moulgrantere, West French Indies. You say so. Yes. She was born of African descent to a single mother named Felicienne. Ooh, beautiful name. I know. Felicienne, she made sure that Stephanie went to school. But then Felicienne got sick. So at 15 years old, Stephanie dropped out in order to take care of her mom. After her mom passed away, Stephanie moved from the West Indies to Montreal. Montreal. Ah, Um, And she was part most likely part of the 1910 to 1911 Caribbean domestic scheme mm-hmm. that moved domestic workers mm-hmm. um, up to Canada. So, Like a, one of the great North migrations for Canada. Yeah, exactly. And specifically to Quebec. Mm-hmm. So from there, she immigrates to the United States. She gets to New York in 1912. She speaks English, Spanish, French. And that means she can, like, skillfully navigate a lot of neighborhoods and a lot of situations. Oh, yeah. And she's sliding through situations a bit. Totally. Well, so she has this brief relationship after she gets there with a small-time crook named Duke. Okay. And he got caught up in nasty business, and he met a terrible end, but it had she had nothing to do with it. <laughs> okay. It was not by her hand. So then she meets this new guy, Ed. She decides to sell drugs with Ed. Okay. With some help from Ed. Um, she makes $30,000. Do we know what drugs she was selling? No, but I'm thinking, what is it, 1915? Yeah, like, I'm figuring like it's cocaine adjacent it's got type it, stuff, yeah. maybe heroin, opium type stuff, or even yeah, some of the yeah. good gauge weed. Yeah, so she makes some of them jazz cabbage. <laughs> she makes the thirty thousand dollars after just a few months. Okay, and then she decides, I don't need Ed, right? <laughs> and Ed finds out, and then they they have a disagreement, and it didn't end well because he fell. Oh, right. Okay. No, no, the other guy fell bad well, luck. Well, that's huh? the guy that fell. So, oh, okay. After this, she's like, "I'm gonna hire my own crew of guys. I'm hiring." When them. he fell, did he fall off a building or like off? He a just step? fell backwards. Okay, I was just wondering. You said fell head. backwards a lot. You can fall off a lot of things. He backwards. was clumsy. Yeah, yeah. So she was like bribing the cops to leave her alone. Oh, that's smart. And then um, this new kind of gang that she had, she's got serious income. So she takes ten thousand dollars of that and she invests it into a lottery game in Harlem. Okay. And the, the, this, the numbers games we were talking about. Well, yeah, about. it's called policy banking. Yeah. So it's a mix of gambling, investing, and then playing the lottery. Okay. Policy banking wasn't really legal. No. Uh, the thing is, at the times, bank weren't banks weren't accepting black clients. Yeah. 
So black Americans couldn't legally invest their own money. In white banks. You'd have to go to black banks. banks. Right. And so for many, policy banking was the only option if they wanted to grow their money, Mm -hmm. if you didn't have black banks in your area. Or if if you'd run afoul of the black banks. Well, there's that too, yeah. So it was common practice for cosmopolitan black communities in major cities all over the country to be involved in this numbers game as a means of investing. Yeah. So... Um, There's this man, Stephen Robertson. He wrote a book called Playing the Numbers, Gambling in Harlem Between the Wars. And he said of policy banking, quote, it was akin to putting money in the stock market. Many saw it as an investment, and it was often just as risky as putting money in the stock market back Mm -hmm. then. So true. This is how it would work. Players would place bets. So uh, a nickel was considered a big bet at the time on a number between 1 and 999. Okay. The organizers figured out what the winning numbers were based on two figures. The total daily clearances among all the member banks and the Federal Reserve Bank credit balance. Hmm. So they would combine the second and third digits from the bank clearings with a third digit from the Federal Reserve Bank balance. So per playing the numbers, that book, the game worked out as such. The last Monday before Christmas 1930, the clearings were $589 million dollars. And the balance was $116 million. Hence, the winning number was 896. So it's 589. So you take mm-hmm. the 89 and then the 6. Anyone who bet on 896 got a payout. Yeah. So this is going along great. Then in the late 30s, financial institutions stopped announcing their daily figures. So the policy bankers, they had to figure out where are we going to get our numbers. They turned to the mutual totals of what was paid out on horse races. Mm-hmm. So St. Clair, she's mathematically gifted. This she, is the numbers that I my family played. I heard about these. Exactly. Yeah. So she's she's like this math whiz. Um, her lottery is just raking in cash. She was such a boss that people started calling her Queenie mm-hmm. in Manhattan and Madam St. Clair in Harlem. So the Harlem numbers game, though, that's a man's world yeah. at this time. Oh, yeah. She was like pretty much the only woman out there and involved. Hmm. But she's generating all these jobs because her her game is huge. She's making all this money. So she's hiring numbers runners. And henchmen. And henchmen. But she had like 50 runners at a time oh, yeah, hired. Do you know who worked as a numbers runner for Queenie when she was a teenager? Uh, I don't know. Gordon Parks. Ella Fitzgerald. Oh, dope. Isn't that incredible? Cool. So she Queenie lives this absolutely lavish lifestyle. In the 20s, she was making about $20,000 a year, and that's kind of like $350,000 today. Mm-hmm. That's not bad not at bad all. Not bad at all. 1930s, there's this journalist who figured out that Queenie was worth probably around $500,000. So that's like $11 million today. She owned property, and she was just like building wealth the only way that she could. Mm-hmm. She lived in an apartment on 409 Edgecombe Avenue. And that's oh, in Sugar Hill. Yep. Looking over what is now Jackie Robinson Park, a yes. couple blocks from the Harlem River, there were a lot of esteemed members of the Harlem community living in this same building. Like uh, Calloway and the painter Aaron Douglas. Oh, word! Uh, future Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. Thurgood Marshall, nice. Is that Duke Ellington in this mix? W. E. B. Du Bois. Oh, W. E. B. Du Bois. Yeah. Nice. So, um, Catherine Butler Jones was a neighbor of hers, and she remembers seeing Queenie in the halls. This is what she said. Madam Stephanie St. Clair breezing through the lobby with her fur coat dramatically flowing behind her. She had a mystical aura about her, and she wore exotic dresses with a colorful turban wrapped around her head. Yes. So she's just, like, floating 
through the, this through West the lobby. Indian goddess. Yeah. So she she donated to organizations that were focused on racial progress okay. and voting rights was a big thing for her. Um, she regularly paid for ads. So in she's local. involved in suffragist movements, essentially. Well, at this point in the 30s. Oh, we're in the 30s. Yeah. Right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, backed, I backed it up too no, much. No, sorry. But I mean, before, yeah. I'm sure. And so she paid for ads in local papers because she wanted to educate the community on their legal rights. Here's something that she put in the Amsterdam News. Quote, to the members of my race, and that's in all caps, if officers meet you on the street and suspect you of anything, do not let them search you on the street or do not let them take you in any hallway to be searched. If the police should ring your doorbell and you open your door, refuse to let them search your house unless they show you a search warrant. Hmm. So she's just, these are our basic civil rights as Americans, something that all of us should know and live. A lot of people have to be told because they presume that if a cop is asking you questions, the best thing to do is to try to exculpate yourself and tell them why you're innocent. And the best thing to do is not say anything because that's just how our system works. And so she's wanting them to have the same information as everybody else. Yeah, don't act like a perp. Right. So she was she spoke out against police brutality against the black community and she filed complaints about police harassment with local authorities. Nice. Um, I think it's important to stop and acknowledge how dangerous that was for her. Oh, God. Yeah. Right. So with the New York police. Uh huh. She is brave. Yeah. Like to, to go ahead. They were and do mad that. racist at this time. Well, of course, nothing came of her complaints. Right. No, probably not. So what did she do? She ran more ads in Harlem papers accusing senior officers of corruption. Ooh. She just keeps. Upping the ante wow. on this. Um, here's something. You know she got henchmen then. <laughs> this is from the 19, A1929 edition of the Amsterdam News. Okay. Quote, I don't understand how these police who are supposed to be the protection of the people can make raids for so-called policy slips when these same men are participants of the game themselves. Oh. So she's calling out, look, you're my customers and then you turn around, you're going to raid me? I don't think so, guys. Oh, yeah. Um, she, I love how she's just constantly taking out ads in the paper. It's her, <laughs> exactly. like, that's her bulletin board. Her bully pulpit. Um, so this time, though, when she calls out her own customers, she gets a response. Um, she got arrested. Mm-hmm. They came after her. And she wound up doing eight months in a workhouse because Ooh. of that. Would Queenie take this lying down? I'm betting no. No, of course not. So she stayed cool. And then she went and testified to the Seabury Commission, Ooh. which was a joint legislative yes. committee formed by the New York legislature, and that was because the governor, mm-hmm. FDR, uh, he had this probe into corruption in New York City. So she tells them all about the kickbacks that she paid to police officers. She tells them all about the cops who played the Harlem numbers games. This time she gets results. More than a dozen officers were fired. Yeah, this was a big deal. This is part of how he made his name. Exactly. So it wasn't just crooked cops and politicians that she aired out in her newspaper ads. Um, if men came courting and she wasn't interested, uh-huh. uh, she'd run ads. <laughs> just, like, <laughs> just put them on blast. Oh, yeah. This is what she, this is what she quote, to whom it may concern. I have received letters and telephone messages from men which have annoyed me very much. And I take this occasion to ask them publicly to please not annoy me. I, Mademoiselle St. Clair, am not looking for a husband or a sweetheart. If you do not stop annoying me, I shall publish their names and letters in the newspaper. And you know who you are. (laughs) Right? I love how everything she does is from this really confident and serene place. She's unflappable. Oh, she's a queen. Unafraid. She's definitely a queen. Yeah. She, she has definitely earned the name. So prohibition comes and goes. Mm-hmm. Um, the Harlem numbers game just keeps cooking along. Oh, yeah. Doesn't mean anything. Um, but another challenge is at hand. Dude, Harlem's number game runs until like the 70s Oh, non-stop. yeah. No, it just keeps I mean, going. Um, but here's this thing. Prohibition ends. Until they legalize the lottery, basically. Yeah, pretty much. Prohibition ends. Uh-huh. 
it had been big business yeah. for a lot of people. A lot of people. And like dancers and musicians, people you're not thinking yeah. of. Not just people who are bootleggers, mm-hmm. but everybody in the work the clubs. But when you look at the bootleggers, they have to find a new source of revenue. Uh-huh. Uh, when we come back, <laughs> I'll tell you who moved where and how and why. Nice. rant for a sec please pay apps are way too public what happened some rando hearted a payment from five months ago and i realized people can see my entire history who i'm paying like full names it's super weird yeah it's weird how are you paying your friends then apple cash it's all in messages you can literally send cash like a text and it stays between friends random people can't see it did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. As you know, the world can be a dangerous and unpredictable place. With every crime I've studied, I've learned one thing. Your best line of defense is your vigilance and preparation. You don't want to worry. You just want peace of mind. That's why I recommend Simply Safe Home Security. For every ridiculous robbery and theft we talk about, it's pretty obvious the crimes could be avoided with a solid security system. A good home security system keeps people prepared and aware. Simply Safe is that system. It was named Best Home Security Systems 2024 by U.S. News and World Report. And it doesn't just protect your home from crime, it also alerts you to fire, floods, and other emergencies. They offer sensors and cameras backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. There are no contracts, and there's a 60-day money-back guarantee. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash ridiculous crime. That's simplysafe.com slash ridiculous crime. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back. Hey, look at us. Hey, Elizabeth. What you doing, Zaren? <laughs> when we left off, yes. let me give you a little recap. Please. Queenie St. Clair, she was ruling the policy bank numbers game, had worked hard for people in her community. She also had now had a principal lieutenant, Ellsworth Bumpy Johnson. Bumpy! Bumpy. No way, He Bumpy. was a cultured gentleman, He's... but he was also a badass. Yeah, oh, yes, he is. He. They called him Bumpy because... He had a large bump on his forehead. <laughs> <laughs> is that really why yeah, they called why. him Bumpy? Yeah. So he and Queenie, they're basically running Harlem at this point. Oh, yes. They're raking in the dough. They're living these really comfortable lifestyles. Prohibition's coming, going. It has no effect. 
Now, are they partners romantically? No, they're just, just business, like, business, like yeah. peers, like we both get it. Exactly. I like this. She got someone on her level. Totally. So prohibition comes to an end. Other criminal elements are losing money. No more illicit hooch to sell. Mm-hmm. As such, this means that there's a loss of the cash cow for both the Jewish and Italian crime families in New York. Mm, okay. Among so other... like the Dutch Schultz, Lucky Luciana's uh-huh, of the world. Among other diversification... They make a move on the Harlem gambling scene. Oh, yes, they did. So, as you said, Bronx mob boss Arthur Dutch Schultz Flegenheimer. Oh, yeah. He kicked it off, right? Yes, he's the one. He gave the black and brown communities in Harlem two options. Yep. Give up their numbers business to him or cut him in on the action. Yeah. Those are the choices. So Dutch Schultz, he has high-powered politicians on his payroll. Everybody. He had James Pines, leader of Tammany Hall. Yeah, he, yeah, um, everybody on his payroll. And he'd also beat and kill anyone who didn't go along with his protection scheme. Yeah, he was ruthless. Totally. So this led New York State Special Prosecutor Thomas Dewey. And he was smart as hell, too. I mean, oh, like he wasn't yeah. like one of those like twitchy mobsters. No. This is somebody who was calculating no. cold and would have been an amazing businessman yeah. legitimately. Well, Thomas Dewey says that he's public enemy number one. Yeah, he was. Because he, he has. Was the guy. He ran. Now, Queenie, though, she's as brave and as steadfast as ever, even Mm -hmm. when faced with Dutch Schultz. Yes. She said, quote, I'm not afraid of Dutch Schultz or any other living man. He'll never touch me. I will kill Schultz if he sets foot in Harlem. He's a rat. The policy game is my game. What? That's a huge statement to be making. She threatened to kill him. Uh She threatened to kill Dutch Schultz. So that's not even it. So then Queenie and Bumpy, they send a message to Dutch by attacking business storefronts that ran his own betting operations. They go on the attack. Queenie, what else did she do? She took to the papers again. How? She started running ads encouraging the people of Harlem to, quote, play black. So, oh, she's like, buy black, but uh-huh. for gambling? She this wanted gamblers to only use black-owned <laughs> and controlled operations, right? So she and Bumpy, then they tip off the police about Schultz's illegal activities. Uh-huh. Uh, they raid Schultz's house. More than a dozen of his men get arrested. They seize the equivalent of about $12 million in cash oh, today. snap. What does Dutch Schultz do? He retaliates. Oh, violently, yeah. I imagine. He calls Queenie at her own home and threatens her. And that, of course, didn't work. He then kidnapped and murdered her men. So there's there's our one person, some of our one person. Yeah, so he's, he <laughs> But she starts, wouldn't budge. Okay. She's like, no. By her men, you mean like her henchmen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then Dutch Schultz puts a hit out on Queenie. Okay. Uh, this is what she had to say about it. Do She's, we know who, who he hired for it? No. Okay. She said she hid in a cellar, uh, quote, while the super, a friend of mine, covered me with coal. So she knew that the killer was coming in the building Went to the cellar, the super the superintendent of the building covers her with coal to hide. Wow. Another That's time, cinematic as hell. Yeah. Another time Schultz sent a henchman to intimidate her. But you know, Queenie's gonna Queenie. Yes. So she got the jump on him. She pushed him into a closet, locked him in, and then ordered her bodyguards to quote, take care of him. <laughs> So that's another part of our 1%. Here. So he, he went from a closet to a I, casket. Well, he, I don't know for certain, though, that she meant what we all think she meant because, like, maybe she understood that hurt people hurt people. Elizabeth. And that she wanted her men to have an encounter therapy session with the guy Elizabeth. and, like, nurture him to a kinder state. Mm. Lots of cozy blankets and comfort food. Elizabeth. You know, take care of him. <laughs> yeah, take care of him. They're Make him feel good. Make him feel well, anyway, so Dutch Schultz, <laughs> he's like bringing way too much danger yes. and way too much police attention. Oh, mad heat and possibility yeah. of death. Yes. Why can't Queenie do her thing in peace? That's what I want to Because she picked a fight with mad Dutch Schultz. Well, she knew what she had to do. What? She went legit. 
Oh, she did. That's she passed the crown to Bumpy. And she said, you're now in charge of my entire criminal enterprise. She trusted him. Yeah. Bumpy was. But what did Bumpy do? Well, Bumpy turned around and made a deal with who? Lucky, Lucky Luciano. Luciano. <laughs> yeah. So Lucky took over Schultz's spots yep. with a percentage going to Bumpy. And the Italians now had to go through Bumpy if they had any problems in Harlem. Yep. And that was the safest option for Bumpy. That was the absolute it smartest thing he could have done. Yep. So Lucky Luciano, he felt like all of Dutch Schultz's craziness was damaging the entire Cosa Nostra yes. in New York. In 1935, he went to the commission the bosses of the five families, mm-hmm. and he had he, a hit put he, on Schultz. He pretty much helped form the commission. I mean, Frank Costello, there's a bunch yeah. of people, but he's like a major player. But Luke, he goes Lucky to Luciano them. is the one who makes it. He goes it, to right? them. He's like, Schultz is a problem. Put a hit on him. Yeah, He exactly. asks for it. He gets it. Um, Schultz, he gets sprayed with bullets while on the toilet at the Palace Chop House in Newark, New Jersey. Yep. Uh, and he gets taken to the hospital. He survived, yeah. Queenie had nothing to do with the shooting. Yes. Can I just say that? Yes. She's not part of it. No, no, I know. <laughs> no this, one present there. Yeah, lucky Luciana, 100%. However, she wasn't mourning the guy. So when she found out, she wired a telegram to his deathbed. <laughs> and this is what it said. Telegram to his yes. deathbed. That is some This is what it said. Ass. As ye sow, so shall ye reap. She went biblical she on She went him. Galatians 6, 7 on that one. That's amazing. Uh, and she signed it. Madam Queen of Policy. Oh. She's stone cold. Yeah, with, stone a, cold. with a rose on top. This. Like a casket. This act made the papers. The, Her sending the telegram, the telegram made the papers. So wait, how? Did the nurses tell? Like, I guess. Dutch amazing. Schultz, he died on October 24th, 1935, one day after the shooting, I suppose reaping what he had sown. Oh, yeah. Uh, so after this, Queenie eventually let a man into her life. Hmm. Uh, she found a partner in a man named Sufi Abdul Hamid. Sufi Born Abdul? Eugene Brown. Oh, okay. Uh, before he moved to New York, he'd been living in Chicago, calling himself Bishop Konshankin, a Buddhist cleric. Okay, so he's not like Noble Drew Ali. I thought he was like Black Moorish. Oh, he's... yeah, he is. Oh, okay. So uh, he was the eventual leader of an Islamic Buddhist cult. He's mm-hmm. a black separatist. Oh, yes. Um, and he, he used to tell people that he was born in the shadows of the Egyptian pyramids. <laughs> I guess sorry, of the mind. I shouldn't laugh. Yeah. He wanted to make a movie. Of course he did. Of course he did. So he goes to Queenie and he asks for money. Fund my dream project. And we're in the we're in the forties at this point. Thirties. Uh, still. still in the late thirties. Yeah. Okay. And she says, hmm, "No, <laughs> smart girl." <laughs> but they kept in contact. Okay. Um. And then one night he declared his love and said, "Will you marry me?" And she said, "Give me three days to think it over." Whoa! They really stayed in contact. Uh huh. And then after three days, she goes, "Yep, I'll marry you." She accepts. What? So in 1936, they get married. What's the scam? What's the angle, Queenie? <laughs> but not legally. Okay, They're not married okay, legally. Okay, there you go. There's something. So Hamid, he draws up a contract that binds their mutual assets as well as them, their persons, for 99 years. This is some weird, like, I, know. I don't trust a man who wants to sign a contract uh, for 99 years. And this, this also made it into the papers, this whole union, right? Yeah, I bet. There was a particularly barbed account of the marriage in a paper called the New York Age. Are you familiar with it? Yeah, I, I know that it existed. It's, I yeah, wasn't a reader. A pro- yeah. <laughs> it's a prominent black paper yeah, of the time. exactly. Um, 
They kind of roast Hamid, making I, fun of should. his outfit. This is what how they described his clothes. Quote, his perennial garb, in addition to his turban, comprises a green cape and a shirt, knee breeches and riding boots. Wait, knee breeches and a cape? Uh-huh. Dude's walking around Harlem in knee breeches oh, and yeah. a cape? He's like his own special superhero. Oh, man. <laughs> um, they took digs at him, claiming to be born you in Egypt. You know the black media is going to roast that. Yeah. Oh, and they like pointed out his criminal history, and then yes. they really went hard at Queenie. Really? Because this is what they for said. For They him? said they didn't believe her, her claims that Dutch Schultz wanted to kill her. This is what it said, yeah. quote, it was this writer's opinion throughout the publicity seeker's rantings that it was beneath Dutch Schultz's dignity to waste valuable ammunition to silence her. Sounds like some black intellectuals jealous. Well, <laughs> it was known as the distinguished black newspaper of opinion. Yeah, I know. They're I, not going to celebrate of criminals. Of course not, but, but the whole high-minded like, oh, uh-huh. blah, blah, and then also with the cutting, dismissing part, like, yeah. so they're also lifting him up at the same time, like, right. he wouldn't have busy business with you? That's the, Come on yeah. now. So anyway. Go back to your... <laughs> Claude McKay poetry and just back up. <laughs> so anyway, all of Queenie's resources were bound to Hamid thanks to this contract. That's so dumb. Ten grand was placed um, in a trust of his was placed in a trust for her. Oh, he does have something. Well, I don't know who's ten grand. Oh, that's was. Good it probably wasn't really, really his. The document though wasn't legally binding. I bet um, not. But he said it was binding under Sharia law. What the? He is a a, a Muslim Buddhist who follows Sharia law. Mm-hmm. Of his own making. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just want to keep... And, yeah. Okay. We're on the same... It, with, it gets, the green, with the green cake. It gets so much better slash worse. Um, <laughs> the contract also had a clause, though, that the couple had a year to figure out if this relationship would actually work. Okay. If it didn't, they would split and the contract would be voided. So there was an annulment clause. Kind, yeah. If, Essentially. If they feel it was, it was working after a year, then they would get married for real in the eyes of the U.S. government. Oh, they doubled down. Yeah. So, it, so Hamid, he's setting off alarm bells for you. A million of them. He should, you know, rightly so. Like um, a bull in a china shop. He had he had a nickname. Yeah. It's a bad one. Oh no! Is he the? Yeah. Let me set this up for you. A historian named Murray Friedman wrote a book called "What Went Wrong: The Creation and Collapse of the Black Jewish Alliance." Hmm. In it, he talks about how Hamid had quote courted the German-American Bund and and the Nazi-like Christian Front. What? Yeah. The uh, German-American Bund in the late 30s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, I love the uniforms. Oh, yeah, it's all coming together. The chanting, the marching. Hamid was a strong advocate for hiring of black employees. That's great. That's valid. Uh, Sure. But he created a negative to balance out that positive by orchestrating violent boycotts against Jewish-owned and Italian and Greek-owned See, that's why the one part doesn't matter. There's also his fashion choices. Yes. Uh, He liked to wear outfits that incorporated Nazi-style military shirts. Big Hugo Boss fan. (laughs) And... He wore a dagger in his belt. Get out. And he wore was like religious requirement? the cape, the gold-lined cape. Oh, God. And he also wore a purple turban. Yeah, he looks unhinged in pictures. Why would Queenie go for this? Well, and also, that doesn't make sense. Does she have also, a drug habit at this point? I like, don't know. What is she doing? His there? anti-Semitic hate speech was off the charts. Super offensive, super dangerous. Yeah. And as such, he was known throughout the community as Black Hitler. So wait a minute. If you're known as Black Hitler in the 30s. <laughs> in the 30s. Like, before, like when Hitler was first making a name for he's himself. He's like the hipster like, of Hitlers. Where yes. He's like, oh, you haven't heard about him yet. Yeah, like not everyone knows he's this gonna dude. He's going to blow up. There's this guy coming up and I'm the black him. So horrible. I mean, what the hell, bro? Like, Well, he, and he had a labor union. Of course he did. It went through name changes. First it was called the Negro Industrial and Clerical Alliance. Then it was the Afro-American Federation of Labor. 
Adam Clayton Powell. What? The first African-American to be elected to Congress from New York. He worked with him for a short time in labor protests, store boycotts. Oh, so But Powell dipped out when, this is what's interesting, when Hamid went from just targeting whites and Jews to going after light-skinned black people like himself. That's where he drew the line. Adam, we need to talk. So he has this labor union. Well, rival black labor unions didn't like his labor union. I bet not. He would collect these $1 dues from each unemployed black worker who wanted a job at a store before he'd start a pressure campaign to get him hired. But the campaign's not falling. He he's getting really wealthy off of this. So he's he's charging people money to have does it basically say if you give me this dollar, I'll go put pressure on these people to hire you. And they're like, all right, bet. And he's doing it for like a lot of people. Uh-huh. And it's like they only have so many spots. And he's like, look, I'm we're gonna get you a we'll job. Get you, we're gonna give me worry. another dollar. We'll, and this I'll go, week, I'll go and we'll put, put on my little costume. And... Yeah, Black Hitler gonna get it done. <laughs> so um, wow. one of his critics was Hammy Snipes. Okay, who was a political activist and a former member of Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League. Uh, Snipes was critical of Hamid and his tactics, and Hamid didn't like that. So in October of <laughs> 1936, <laughs> Snipes is giving this speech. He's calling for equal pay for African-American members of the Meat Cutters Union. Okay. Hamid and his buddy Alan McAlpine, they attacked Snipes, and they stabbed him in the arms. Oh, physically attacked him? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I thought you were saying, like, rhetorically. No, <laughs> no. This is where they, like, start stepping across lines. Uh, Snipes gets 10 stitches and the growing support of the community. So yeah. Hamid, he gets 20 days in prison and then is eventually barred from picketing. That's it. Barred from, okay. So in response, he's like, fine, you won't let me picket? Um, I'm going to start a mosque, the Universal Holy Temple of Tranquility. So he's <sighs> like one of the first black Muslims in this country, but he wasn't associated with Nation of Islam. Yeah, so I'm assuming he's basically a rival of noble Drew Ali. Yes. Same time, same area. Uh-huh. And he's coming up with uh-huh. his version of like a back to Africa spiritual movement. Right. And he's going, Marcus Garvey's going to try to get you there. I'm going to try to get your spirit there. Exactly. Exactly. So it was very, yeah, it was a heady mix. He starts calling himself a bishop, which, okay. Of course. You, and need, then the, you need the funny hat. You know? He gets a brand new nickname. He's no longer Black Hitler. Black Miter. Black Mufti. I was close. <laughs> so August 31st. He goes from Hitler to Mufti. This in guy, August 31st, 1937, he opened his organization to Jewish members. So wait, now he's cool now he's, with the chosen people because uh-huh. he needs what from them? Money, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, He'll he, take anyone with money, I would I suppose. Huh. I don't know. Okay. So he's doing his thing. He's running his mosque and he's running around on Queenie. <sighs> yeah. Let's take a break. Let's Let's... Let's work on this. Oh, my God. I'm Let's, getting You heated. know what? Calm down. Let's listen to some smooth ads. Nice. Just cool out. When we get back, I'll tell you what happens when you cross Queenie. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. 
Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP. They held us in dog cages They starved us, they beat us, they burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us, so we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment the Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Aaron. Hey. You good? I'm good. Okay. Those commercials are really smooth. I know, out. right? So when we left off, Queenie yeah. St. Clair, she'd married Black Hitler. <laughs> yes. He's a black separatist, general sleazeball, anti-Semite, con man, <laughs> philanderer. Embarrassment to her and the race. Yes. 3.10 p.m. on January 18th, 1938, Hamid, Black Hitler, he is heading out of his apartment on 309 West 125th Street in Harlem. This is 38. So before 39, okay. Yeah. I, was, I was just trying to find the year. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and he's on his way to go see his lawyer. And he runs into Queenie in the third floor hallway. Zarin. Yes. Close your eyes. Oh, yeah. My eyes are closed. I want you to picture it. You're on foot, and you've just left the Apollo Theater. You're in charge of booking acts there. You're walking down West 125th Street on a quick break before you head back to work. Uh, You want to get some air, maybe stop in somewhere for an egg cream. There's a great fountain not too far up the street. You're whistling some Mozart as you walk. As you pass the five-story apartment building on uh, 309 West 25th, you decide to poke your head in and say hi to your friend, Clarence Dade. He's the elevator operator there. 
He loves Mozart, and you just got a bunch of records from Europe that you want to share with him. The 45th Symphony, bro! <laughs> a few weeks ago on Christmas, the two of you had listened to Arturo Toscanini conduct the NBC Symphony Orchestra on U.S. radio for the first time. Amazing show. Now, it was mostly Vivaldi, whom no one seemed to really play at the time, but there was a lot of Mozart and Brahms, and you've been whistling ever since. And I'm a big Vivaldi fan. You are. You step into the lobby, you greet Clarence. You're just about to tell him about the records when a shot rings out. Then another. Then another. Clarence looks stunned. The two of you race up the stairs, listening at each landing to see if that's where the shot originated. You reach the third floor landing, and Clarence yanks the door open. You stay in the stairwell in case you have to run back down for help. You peek into the hall, and you see Clarence standing over a large man who's sprawled on the floor. A well-dressed woman stands beside them. That's Queenie St. Clair, you think to yourself. A few doors down, a neighbor woman had her head poked out the door. Is he okay? Asked that resident, Nettie Roach. She's panicked. He's alive, replies Clarence. Zarin, run down to the lobby and call for help. I'm on it. You dash down the stairs in elegant Zarin-style speed, lifting yourself off the banisters in, like, early parkour arches and leaps. (laughs) You grab the phone, and you hit the receiver for the operator. Queenie St. Clair just shot Black Hitler! You're about to tell the operator that it served him right, but you keep that to yourself. The police arrive. Queenie's arrested. Black Hitler lived, so there's no 1% involved here. Queenie, she gave interviews in the weeks leading up to the trial. She posed for photographs from her room in the women's detention prison in Manhattan, as well as photos at the 123rd Street Police Station. So Mm. she's just making an event of it. Mm -hmm. At the trial, Queenie testified that Hamid was a gambler that he was involved in business ventures that went nowhere, wiped out all his cash, and Mm -hmm. he was just constantly asking her for money. What really ground her gears, though, was that Hamid had a mistress. She was a Jamaican fortune teller named Dorothy Matthews, who went by the name Foo Futtum. Foo Futtum? Yeah, (laughs) F-U-F-U-T-T-A-M. Foo Futtum. Queenie accused Futtum and Hamid of trying to start businesses using her money. What was one of the ventures? Selling manure. Um, (laughs) Queenie also said that they tried to poison her. And it wasn't to kill her, but to, like, gain her trust by, quote-unquote, caring for her in her, Oh, while she's enfeebled? Weakened state, Uh yeah. And then she would, like, they would try and get her to um, give them loans uh, when she was all dazed. Yeah, out of it on drugs or whatever. Yeah. So talking about that confrontation in the hallway, this is what Queenie said. Quote, I didn't want to kill him. I only wanted to scare him. If I'd killed him, I would have died. So she loves him. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I got you now. It took me a second. But what, she what said, do you think it was? I mean, like, I is this know. stroke game off the charts? Like, what was it? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So. <laughs> I'm just wondering. Queenie, I can't figure it out. Queenie says, Queenie says that the gun is Hamid's. Okay. Right? Quote, when I tried to grab the gun from him, he threw me against the wall and bit my finger. It was during the struggle to gain possession of the gun to keep him from killing me that it went off three times. <laughs> it went off three yeah. times. So she holds he kept up trying her hand. to grab it. <laughs> yeah. She holds up her hand. She's got her fingers wrapped in white tape. She slowly unwraps the tape and shows the jury her wounds from where he bit her. Like Hitler bit my finger. <laughs> and then they have this nurse, Rosa Glover. She's from the detention center. She comes and she verifies, yeah, those are teeth marks on her hand. Um, Nettie Roach, that neighbor that you saw in the hall, mm-hmm. she backs up Queenie's testimony. She says, look, I looked out. Hamid's holding the gun and said, I'll shoot you to Queenie. So that's what the neighbor sees. Hmm. Queenie's lawyer 
gets Hamid to admit that his real name is Eugene Brown. Okay. And that he was from Philadelphia. Is he like H. Rat Brown's dad? I think so. <laughs> uh, he admitted that Dorothy Matthews, a.k.a. Foo Fadum, mm-hmm. Fudum, uh, was his mistress. Okay. So he confesses to that. Queenie's attorney, um, he get he got a $100 fine when he tried to push Hamid to talk about how he got the nickname Black Hitler. <sighs> Do you imagine him like in court, like in his wrap up being like, who here would go back in time and kill baby Black Hitler? <laughs> Do you think he had like the dash L at the end of his name? Oh, of course. Yeah. Well, that, you know, that's Black Morris. So yeah. uh, he probably didn't. He probably had dash M because he wanted to be distinct. He wanted to be distinct. Like, He's the next yeah, level me and of it. Utum. So uh, the lawyer, right, is like, tell us how, why they call you Black Hitler. Yeah, and the judge is like, us. knock it off. That's immaterial. And now you got to pay a hundred dollar fine because you won't let it go because he wouldn't stop oh, with the black I like Hitler. It. I like this guy. I know. Um, so what did Hamid say? He claimed that Queenie shot him on sight three times. Bang, bang, bang. Mm-hmm. He said that the first shot singed his mustache and chipped his teeth. The second one chipped his teeth. Uh-huh. Was she firing a twenty two? <laughs> The second one grazed his arm and burned his coat. What kind of bullet? And she the firing? third bullet lodged in a wall. So your pal Clarence, yeah. he testified too. He said that he heard a boom and then he heard Hamid yell, I am shot. <laughs> Sorry, I should <laughs> he, he said that he heard Queenie say um, as he approached, he's lying. He was shooting at me. So Clarence hears the whole conversation. The patrolman who made the arrest also testified. His name is Frederick Damro. Uh, so not a brother? No, he was called to the stand by the prosecution. Okay. Damro said he questioned Queenie right after the shooting. He asked her, why did you shoot your husband? She replied, I got tired of paying. Queenie denied ever speaking to him or any police staff in the immediate aftermath of the shooting. That lines up with her standard practice, right? It should be noted, though, six months after the trial, Damro, he gets indicted for conspiracy and grand larceny for setting up and shaking down a Hungarian upholstery manufacturer. No, a dirty New York cop in the mid-century? His word isn't really worth much, and his actions lined up with what Queenie had been saying her whole life. That's damn right. Unfortunately for Queenie, a ballistics specialist testified and said the gun had to be at least 18 inches away from Hamid when it went off. She so pulled, it she pulled wasn't her arm in a back. tussle. She pulled her arm back. There was no gunshot residue on his clothing. He moved fast. So much for the he was shooting at me defense. The prosecution rests. That's it. It took the jury three hours to deliver their verdict. Also not good. Yeah. They found her guilty of possession <sighs> of a deadly weapon and first degree assault. She gets sentenced to two to ten years in state prison for women in Bedford Hills, New York. The judge concluded his sentencing by saying, quote, This woman has been living by her wits all of her life. She has a bad temper and must learn that she can't go around shooting in other people. He starts out like it's a compliment. And then he gets to, (laughs) like, finger-wagging at the end. Stop with your pew-pew. Look, look, this is America, man. This is what we do. (laughs) So what were her last words as she left the courthouse? You can eat my... (laughs) According to journalist uh, Sumitra Naidu, quote... One news source claimed she laughed her infamously sinister laugh and merrily thanked the judge. Another wrote that she was escorted out of the room, stealing a baleful glance at McVeigh and hissing, you louse. (laughs) One article claimed she uh, said with dramatic aplomb, quote, he done me wrong and he'll get his just desserts. Yet another wrote that she simply blew a kiss. 
Ooh, I like that one. Yeah. I bet she, I bet she was uh, asking Bumpy, you know this man's address? Right. <laughs> get, get lucky Luciano get lucky to pay him a home visit. Well, so Hamid, less than a year later, he's flying his private plane. This guy, dude. Uh, get on, in the ground, Hamid. Well, he crashed it oh, there on go. Long Island after running out of fuel, and he died. <laughs> Are you happy, Saren? He, he and then in all the papers, it was like he and his white secretary. So, Ooh. yeah, she lived. He di- he didn't make it. He ran out of fuel. Uh-huh. And see, here's the thing. Like, he would constantly tell his congregation that, like, yeah, okay, fine, guys. The plane's really expensive, but I'm going to keep costs down by not filling the tank all the way. And also, think about it. It gets me closer to God. Well, yeah. So, you know. <laughs> the savings of me running around with a low tank. And and then this is what happens, right? Of course. Wah, wah. I, mean, I can't believe he actually did it. Like I, think, yeah. I thought he would just lie to yeah, them. Yeah, no. Like, he oh, was, he, hey, he was telling the truth. Oh, his okay. religious group fell apart soon after his death. His mosque was converted to a dance hall featuring a one-legged dancer. That is like the greatest end cap to his tale. Yeah, I'm over here trying not to make any inappropriate jokes about a one-legged dancer, but like, I just keep thinking about the stripper pole and the one-legged dancer. I'm <laughs> well, like, I got a lot to say. <laughs> so I'm not going to say any of it. Queenie served three years yes. and then was released. And then... Of the two to ten, okay. She, she gets out and she really leans into her advocacy work on political reform. Bumpy, remember Bumpy? Yeah, my dude. He became the king of Harlem. Totally. And it's believed... Movies are made about him. He went to live with Queenie and spent his twilight years writing poetry. I love that. Right? An article from the 1943 uh, New York Amsterdam News, uh, there's more than one that year, yes. but whatever, mm-hmm. um, it said that Queenie went to the West Indies to visit relatives before going into seclusion under Bumpy's protection. Nice. And uh, Bumpy passed away from a heart attack in 1968. Mm-hmm. And then... And that's what changed Harlem, to be quite honest. Right. One year later, just shy of her 73rd birthday, Queenie passed away. Most sources said that she died with a lot of money. Was I bet. really wealthy. Some say that she died broke in a Long Island psychiatric facility. I don't want to believe them. Oh, I, you know, I don't believe she ever had kids. So I don't know who would be her heir or what would become of any fortune that she still had. Yeah. Um, but she worked really hard to stay out of the spotlight in her later years. Exactly. So it's, there's really no telling. There was a film called Hoodlum, made mm-hmm. in 1997, starring Cicely Tyson as Queenie, Lawrence Fishburne as Bumpy, and Tim Roth as Dutch Schultz. Dutch Schultz, yeah. HBO has a movie about Queenie and her life coming up, apparently. Also, I think she's in the uh, Dutch Schultz movie briefly that uh, we're... Um... Dustin Hoffman plays Dutch Schultz. Okay, yeah. I think she's, or maybe Bumpy, just Bumpy, but I think there's yeah. a whole uh, Harlem Well, there's also, that. there's a graphic novel called Queenie, Godmother of Harlem by um, Aurelie Levy and Elizabeth Columba. Is it a graphic novel? Yeah, that oh. just came out okay. um, just recently. Dope. So she's in our consciousness. She's in our hearts. Queenie. She, she is a guiding light. Zarin, yeah. Elizabeth. Burnett, what is your, <laughs> yes, ridic- what's your ridiculous takeaway? My ridiculous takeaway is a green cape and breeches? <laughs> That's all I keep thinking about, dude. Is out there like in jodhpurs and a turban <laughs> and like a like some kind of weird scimitar and, he, and he's and he's spouting anti-Semitic stuff and people are like, this guy. Get out like, of here. What's with, like, like, why are we having to be saddled with him? This is why segregation sucks. Well, and he's I stuck. We're stuck with him. I. The question is. Why with Queenie? So what was that? I can't figure that, that out. It drives me insane. What was I'm telling it? You, I, you know my one I know guess. What your one guess is. But yeah, what is like 
the fact that she's so self-possessed and independent, and then it's when she gets out of the game that she but th- hooks up with him. She's got bumpy know. right in poetry, so she's got I a soft know. side. She's got an intellectual I side. Know. She's got a, a, a sensitive soul, maybe an artist soul, whatever you want to call right. it. She's got she can appreciate the finer things in life, and then she's got this jackknife out there acting like a clown on speed. Well, and I wonder too if she didn't really have an opportunity to connect with someone who was more on the straight and narrow and like also fighting her civil rights fights, right? Because they didn't want to be associated with a criminal. Like a young Thurgood Marshall type. Right. Somebody who's self-possessed, smart, could deal with her. But she's bad for the reputation. Exactly. So So that's the problem. And it's like, she needs a piano player. Yeah. That's the women like her in the past. Oh, you <laughs> need get a yourself piano uh, yeah, a, a reliable piano player cuz that guy, he's going to need you. He's a piano player. He can't live on his own. He's, <laughs> honestly. So then he, he'll be loyal. And the only you have to do is make sure he's not not out there like, you know, catting around and then Yeah, or or getting all strung out. Yeah, there is that concern yeah. always with the piano players. Yeah, with the jazz musicians. Especially at the jazz cats, yeah. yeah. Anyway. But I still think get yourself a musician, baby. You'll be all right. <laughs> That's it. That's all I have for today. I like that one. I love her. You can find us online at Ridiculous Crime on both Twitter for the talking and what I say, Instagram for the gawking. Um, Email us if you really want to at RidiculousCrime at gmail.com. Download the iHeart app. Leave us something called a talkback. It is a 30-second voicemail with no repercussions. You like how you always pitch these and I never I do. I know, you never do. Because I want people to leave their messages. <laughs> I would like to, too. I just They're think, entertaining I when we get them. It. But, you know, whatever. Yes, please send them. They are good. <laughs> and then listen to the next one. Ridiculous Crime is hosted by Elizabeth Dutton and Zarin Burnett. That's me! <laughs> Produced and edited by Kingy, Dave Houston. Research is by Ruthless Numbers Runners, Marissa Brown and Andrea Song Charpentier. The theme song is by Thomas Lumpy Lee and Travis Grumpy Dutton. Executive producers are Ben, I'll take $7.29 for a nickel, Bolin, and Noel, give me $5.81 for a dime, Brown. Ridiculous crime. Say it one more time. Ridiculous Crime. Ridiculous Crime is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. 